and welcome to the House of Legends, where you can hear world myths and legends told by a professional storyteller. I'm your host, Daniel Allison, and this is episode 62, The Fairy Lake with Chenge Zalka. Before we go any further, I'd like to thank Kalina Heisey and Ailey Milliken for becoming patrons of House of Legends. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. If you're a new listener, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're a new listener, then hit subscribe now in your podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. On this podcast, you'll hear myths, legends, and traditional stories from myself and master storytellers from across the world. I release two episodes each month, one featuring a story from me and one featuring a story from a guest teller. You can get access to every House of Legends episode by becoming a patron. By pledging $5 per month or more, you'll receive a patron-only episode each month, along with a worksheet full of questions and creative prompts to help you deepen your connection to the story. As well as being an oral storyteller, I'm also an author. I write retellings of myths and legends, as well as fantasy inspired by Celtic myths and legends. You can now find my books by searching for Daniel Allison on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, though currently you can only get my full catalogue on Amazon. You can get my book The Shattering Sea as a free download on Kindle, Kobo and Apple Books. If you're interested in becoming a storyteller yourself, or you're already a storyteller and would like to develop your craft, you can join my online storytelling school, The Roundhouse, or you can join my Myth Singers coaching program, which includes Roundhouse membership plus two monthly group coaching sessions with me. Visit roundhouseschool.com to learn more and download a free pack of stories. You'll find links to all of the above in the show notes. Our guest this week is Chenge Zalka. Chenge is a professional storyteller and author from Hungary. She got her MA in storytelling at East Tennessee State University and has her PhD in culture studies at Bowling Green State University. She performs traditional stories, uh, folktales, myths, legends and epics internationally in English, Spanish and Hungarian. She's been featured at festivals in the USA, Spain, Switzerland, Italy and Greece. Chenga and I have been in touch online for years, I think, but this is the first time I got the chance to have a real conversation with her. It was fascinating to hear about her journey and her work, and I hope you enjoy the conversation and the story as much as I did. If you want to go straight to the story, you can find the story start time in the show notes. Hello, Chenga, and welcome to House of Legends. Thank you. Hello. Nice to be here. And where is here for you? Uh, Right now, I am in Budapest, Hungary. This is where I live now, and this is where I work most of the time. Okay, and where did you grow up? I grew up in Győr, which is the northwestern part of Hungary. It's halfway between Budapest and Vienna. So it's the the western borders of Hungary. That's where I grew up, and I came to Budapest uh, for university. Okay, and did you grow up steeped in the folklore of the region? (laughs) Yes, uh, kind of. My grandparents told me a lot of stories. My grandfather, uh, is my paternal grandfather especially, is a great natural storyteller and he has a lot of the local legends and lore and uh, my entire family is just very talkative. So I had my parents telling me a lot of stories and my grandparents telling me a lot of stories and uh, my grandparents live in a village so they still had a lot of the, the folklore alive when I was little and uh, my grandparents are still alive today which is amazing and I get to record a lot of their stories and I get to record them just talking about their life so it's a great uh, lucky thing to have them still around Um, so yeah there was a lot of talking in the household and a lot of storytelling 
Mm. So was this just the norm of an evening? You would sit by the fire and tell stories? <laughs> Not really fire, no, but uh, kitchen table, mostly. Yeah. Uh, Sunday lunches. Um, lunch is the main meal in Hungary. So we would get together on Sundays and have a great big lunch and then sit around in the afternoon in my grandparents' house and just tell stories to each other. Okay. And for those who aren't familiar, can you give us any kind of overview of the folklore of the region, the, the general shape of it? Well, um, there is a lot of, uh, my grandfather told a lot of trickster stories. Most of, most of the time he just swore up and down that it happened to him or to somebody in the village. And I grew up uh, thinking that a lot of the Munchausen tales um, happened to my grandfather. And later on, when I found the book, I was scandalized that somebody published them. But uh, <laughs> so there were a lot of stories that my grandfather just told as if they were family anecdotes. And then later on, I found them in various uh, folktale collections and, and uh, various folktale catalogs. And that was really fun. So a lot of funny stories, a lot of tall tales, a lot of trickster tales, um, a lot of true stories about uh, World War II, which my grandparents lived through when they were children. Um, and then the, the local folklore uh, in the part of Hungary that I am from, it's uh, riverlands. So it's the Danube and, uh, and the Raba and the Marzal and other rivers uh, in the area. We have a lot, we have a lot of uh, fairy legends. We have a lot of fairy lore um, because Hungarian fairies are very often water creatures. So they are, um, their stories are attached to the rivers and the lakes. Um, we have a lot of wizard figures in our folklore. Um, there is one um, folklore character specifically, the Garabonciash, which is a wizard student. Uh, they go to school, they learn magic at school. And this is the, this is the, the related to the European tradition of uh, wizarding schools like Salamanca and Bologna and uh, the other, other cultures have it too. And um, Garabonciash wizards in Hungarian folklore can tame dragons. That's what they do. They go around and they can summon and ride dragons when they want to. And uh, those dragons are also water creatures. So Garabonciash can summon a dragon from a lake or from a river. And sometimes they get hired to get rid of dragons that um, just start, you know, terrorizing um, villages or um, the countryside. So, so that's the kind of uh, folklore that that we are surrounded with in in Narandjur, in that northwestern corner of Hungary. Is a lot of uh, river lore, a lot of dragons, fairies, wizards, um, a lot of local legends about those things. It's not really the great big fairy tales anymore, as much as the the landscape, the stories that are attached to the landscape that are still there. Okay, and that's great. I love when there are stories that specifically relate to a specific place and that you can tell when you go out there and that it enriches your experience of being in that place do you find that it's a very present part of your experience when you're when you're out in those places thinking about those stories yes i i really like every every time i travel and wherever i go i love uh being able to associate stories with specific places and uh and I love finding stories that happen in places that I that I know that I've been to. Um, and honestly, when I was a beginner storyteller around 2005, 2006, um, 
I didn't tell a lot of Hungarian folktales because a lot of our folktale collections are um, detached from the landscape. So people love to collect the big traditional fairy tales, but those are, you know, they those take place in a mythical world and they are not really a recognizable um, place that, that you could go to and visit. So um, when I started getting deeper into what storytelling means to me and into my identity as a storyteller, I started getting deeper into the, my, my, you know, smaller um, birthplace instead of all of Hungary and all of Hungarian folklore and, uh, and started digging up these local legends about the fairies and the wizards. And, and that's when I started finding the stories that were still connected to the landscape and, and the places that I could recognize. So it was an important step in me developing as a storyteller to have a, a more specific identity within Hungary without, without representing all of Hungary all the time, which I do when I go abroad. Uh, within Hungary, it was very interesting and, and very meaningful to, to get into the local stories of where I grew up. Mm. And so how did you go from being a child who grew up surrounded by stories to being a storyteller? I always loved telling stories. Um, when I was a teenager, I was I was reading uh, Lady Gregory's Gods and Fighting Men, which at that time did not have Hungarian translation yet. So I was reading it online uh, in English and practicing my English. I had a very specific vocabulary at that time. <laughs> that's pretty impressive because I mean that's hard <laughs> to read for people who speak English. <laughs> yeah, there was a there was an English competition, an English as a second language competition that I went to where you had to pick a book to read and I picked that and the the judges didn't know what to do with that. Um <laughs> so so yes, I was reading that book and I wanted to be a bard. Um, that's, that's the thing I wanted to do when I started learning stories. I was really into mythology. I was really into hero legends. And, um, obviously that was not a career option. So <laughs> when I went to college, I went, um, to archeology. span I started studying archeology span at that time in Hungary. You had to pick your major right when you were doing the entrance exams. And then that was the major that you stuck with. So I applied to archaeology and I got in and I got my degree after five years. It was uh, not, not, didn't have the BAMA system yet. Um, and while I was at the university, I found out that there are people who are professional storytellers and it is a job that you can do as a profession, you know, for money and <laughs> full time. And um and I decided that this is what I always wanted to do. I knew immediately that if there is such a thing as a professional storyteller, then this is what I want to do with my life. Likewise. I've never, I've never worked as an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so what happened next? So what happened is that the university had this uh, scholarship to apply that you could apply to. It was called the Kellner Scholarship. And it was financed by a, a Hungarian-American family. And uh, I applied to the scholarship because I found out that um, 
there are storytelling conferences in the United States and there are storytelling festivals, you know, it's just Jonesboro and, and um, there, are, there are storytelling guilds and workshops. And that was all of the things that we didn't have in Hungary at the time. So I applied for the scholarship to spend a year in the USA and learn about storytelling. And I got the scholarship. They were very confused. They never had a storyteller before. And, uh, and I spent a year in, uh, in Connecticut at Trinity College. And I went to all the storytelling festivals that I could go to and the oldest, all the big uh, conferences and all the workshops. And I just, you know, um, immersed myself in, in American storytelling. And then when I came back, I finished my degree in archaeology and then I got a Fulbright to go back to the U.S. and actually do my master's in storytelling at, uh, at the ETSU storytelling program. But that was, I mean, I started storytelling right away uh, when I decided that I wanted to be a storyteller. I just printed a bunch of flyers and I started, <laughs> started just spamming people with, you know, hey, I'm a storyteller. This is, this is what I, what I want to do. And uh, my first uh, gig, my first paid gig was at the National Museum of Fine Arts. <laughs> and and um, that is actually a funny story because I, I I reached out to a lot of museums because I was in archaeology and I was familiar with that kind of um, landscape and I was familiar with museums. And the National Museum of Fine Arts was going to have a, um, a South American exhibit and their museum educating museum educator team was uh, looking for somebody to do storytelling, and they were looking for somebody to specifically do uh, South American Peruvian stories. And but they didn't know what a storyteller really was. They didn't know what I was trying to do at the time. Nobody really understood how storytelling works as a profession. So they called me in, and the museum educator that I talked to was an Egyptologist. So he took me down to the Egyptian exhibit of the Fine Arts Museum and he was like, all right, tell me an Egyptian story. Uh, <laughs> and, and I love mythology and I was really into stories, as I mentioned, and I told an Egyptian story and then um, they hired me for the exhibit and for the, the programs that were attached to the exhibit. So that was my first paid gig. And uh, <laughs> I was very lucky that he asked for us the kind of story that I actually had in my repertoire at the time. Yeah, it sounds like if you didn't know one, he would have been like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was he was very he was very critical. Um I told the Black Prince, if you know that story. It's uh I think it was Laura Sims who put it in uh, Ready to Tell Tales. There is this book called Ready to Tell Tales, which is an American storytelling collection their famous storytellers put their favorite stories in it for beginners to use. And that's the, that's a book that I had. And there was this Egyptian story called the black prince. And it's a really beautiful story. It's not ancient Egyptian. It, I think it's, it's, you know, probably an Arab folktale from Egypt. Uh, it sounds like an Arab folktale. And, and he pointed at that. He was like, this is not an ancient Egyptian story. And I said, yes, I know, but it still counts. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we agreed on that. <laughs> Oh, very good. And then how did you find going to America after being immersed in a certain world of folk tales and storytelling, going to America where things are presumably a bit different? Uh, <laughs> how did you find the whole storytelling world there? Um, it was lovely. It was, uh, yes, it was surprising in many ways. Um, 
a lot of American tellers work with personal stories, which was not a thing that I even knew about. Um, Hungarians don't really do that. Hungarian storytellers are really traditional and do folk stories um, almost all the time. So going to to American festivals and seeing so many people doing personal storytelling was completely new to me and and uh, very exciting. It was a very very friendly atmosphere. Um, American storytellers were just so open and and helpful, and they just kept you know piling advice and stories and resources on me. And it was just a huge amount of support that I got from the storytelling community. Um, from the moment that I first show up, I started with um, I started with um, an email list, and I just sent an email saying, "Hi, I'm in Hungary, and I just found out that storytelling is a profession, and this is what I wanted to do all my life." Like I was 20 years old at the time, <laughs> I was very excitable, and um, the next morning I had like 50 emails in my mailbox uh, from the list, and it was all storytellers being very friendly and saying hi and sending me their you know resources and advice and uh, it was very heartwarming so I loved spending time uh, with the American storytelling community because they were very very friendly and it just it just felt like home and it felt like we shared all this excitement about stories and all this love for for storytelling Hmm. oh that's really nice to hear yeah (laughs) <laughs> and so what does your what does your work look like now? Because you don't just tell stories, you also write, you research, you have a blog. Yes. Uh, right now, my, I have a full-time job with uh, an NGO called the Vilaxep Foundation. And it's uh, named after a, a Hungarian folktale. It is a foundation that supports uh, children in the state care system. So what we do is we have a volunteer storytelling program, among many other programs. The one that, that I'm responsible for is the storytelling program where we train volunteers who learn storytelling from us. And then they visit uh, group homes, children's homes every week to tell bedtime stories to children who are in the foster system and they don't really have their parents or their family around to to tell them stories. So our volunteers visit them regularly and uh, and tell them tell them bedtime stories. That is that's basically it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we do summer camps that are all you know storytelling in the morning, storytelling in the evening. Um, the camp is by Lake Balaton, so it's a really beautiful place in the summer, and they can go and swim in the lake, and we can go hiking, and it's just. Basically, the goal of the foundation is to just let them be kids and then give them as much personal attention and love and care as as we can as, you know, an organization outside of the foster system. We try to just add what we can. We get them volunteer mentors. We have an inclusive kindergarten. We have inclusive after school programs. you know, we have a lot of people working on giving as much as we can, especially in terms of attention and and uh, emotional care. Not really, we're not really connecting like material donations as much as we are um, trying to give the kids experiences and memories. And storytelling is a huge part of that. So it's basically the best job in the world uh, <laughs> as a storyteller. It had to have a full-time job where my actual full-time job is to tell stories to 
to foster kids and spend time with them and, you know, love them and support them. And, um, and it's also part of my job to provide the stories for our volunteers so that they don't have to do all of the, you know, hardcore research that story that professional storytellers do. So every month I make a story collection for them so that they get seven new stories a month that I research and adapt and craft and, uh, and, you know, write down and, um, and then send it out to our volunteers. So it's a, there's a lot of research work, a lot of collecting the best stories that I can find and, uh, and a lot of storytelling. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good mix. <laughs> it is. It's a great place to work. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit about your writing? Um, yeah, I write folktale collections. Um, so I do a lot of background research on my stories and, uh, and I believe that as a professional storyteller, as a traditional storyteller, I have to, I have a responsibility to the folktales that I work with, um, and to be true to the stories that I, that I pass on. And also I have a responsibility to my audiences to tell these stories the, the best way possible. So I do a lot of background as I said, I do a lot of background research where I find many, many versions of any specific folktale and then compare the versions and try to find the one that that speaks to me, the one that I like best and that that's the one I work with. Um, I have themes for my folktale collections. I have uh, the one I published in English. It's called Tales of Superhuman Powers, where I collected traditional stories that feature superpowers the same kinds of uh, abilities that we now see in uh, movies and comic books um, also existed in traditional tales. And it was really fun to try to find stories about, you know, people being able to fly, people being invisible, people, people having super speed, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, so I do, I do, I work with traditional stories that I retell from the materials that I research myself. I have a feminist folktale collection. Actually, I have two volumes of a feminist folktale collection in Hungarian. And then the one that I'm working on right now is a collection of folktales that are their versions of well-known fairy tales. So I'm collecting um, alternative versions of Cinderella. I have male sleeping beauty. I have... Um, the Fox and the Three Pixies, which is the earliest known version of the Three Little Pigs. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Little Golden Hood and the Wolf, which is a, a French uh, Little Red Riding Hood variant uh, with a very badass grandmother. So I'm looking up rare versions of stories that everybody thinks that they know. Um, and it's a super fun project. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. And I know you like uh, Finn McCool stories as well. Uh, oh, yeah. How did you come up? So, oh, yeah, you, you said that you started reading uh, Gods and Fighting Men at quite a young age. How, how did you come across that? Where, where, was it the Fiona stories that particularly took you out of all those stories? Um, there was a, a Hungarian book series called Myth and Legends, and it had, you know, a Norse volume and it had a... Um, a Greek and Roman volume and like all the, you know, big mythologies, it had an Egyptian volume and it had a volume that was Celtic uh, myths and legends in Hungarian. And it had some, um, some fun, cool stories in it. Uh, the, the, 
the names were kind of butchered as I found that later, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so it, I read it as a kid and I loved it. I found it very exciting. And then I later on when we got, you know, a good internet connection and <laughs> started exploring the internet, I started finding out more about these stories and I found Gods and Fighting Men, which is in the public domain. So you can find it online. And I just loved, I don't know why those hero legends just spoke to me that much. I think this has something to do with um, being kind, being a team of having a team of heroes. I never liked individual heroes like nearly as much as I liked teams and stories about, um, you know, multiple heroes as a group or as a family um, having adventures together. So I loved that part especially and I just they're just so much fun and it's just such likable characters most of the time not always but um I just I just loved Gods and Finding Men and then I started digging up all other books that I could get my hands on to read more about the Fianna and um I started collecting those tales and they stuck with me (laughs) yeah they are good (laughs) they are good yeah that's uh that's been our most recent series on the podcast so they're hopefully quite fresh in people's minds. Okay, so I think it's about time for you to tell us a story. Would you like to tell us a story now? Yes. like to tell you is a story that comes from the place where I grew up in Hungary. There is a place called the Fairy Lake. It's a very small, very deep lake in a, in a beautiful willow forest. And I've been there multiple times when I was a kid. People call it the Fairy Lake in the neighboring villages because they all believe that once upon a time, a long, long time ago, fairies used to live in that lake. Hungarian fairies, you see, are water creatures, and they had their palaces under the water. And people believe that when they comb their hair, when they comb their golden hair, gold would sprinkle out of their hair. And that's why you can still find gold in the lakes and the rivers in that area. Other people say that they peed in the water, and it is less romantic, but it's still gold. Anyway, Legend says that the time came when the fairies had to leave our world. They had to move somewhere else. People changed. History was changing. And the fairies decided that they couldn't coexist with humans anymore. So they all decided to leave. Some people say that they went up into the sky. And at night, you can see the lights of their palaces if you look up. But they left something behind, and not just the gold. They left some of their magic in the water. So people around the fairy lake whispered that if you bathe in that water on the first full moon night after the day of St. Anne, after the feast day of St. Anne in the summer, then you can have the beauty of the fairies. 
So all the girls in the neighboring villages were told that they should try that. Um, and maybe the magic would work and everybody would be very beautiful. And they also whispered that if you bathed in the water on that full moon night, then you would get the love of the man that you most wanted. My story says that in one of these villages, there was a girl and her name was Agnes, and she was not pretty. The other girls made fun of her a lot and uh, they didn't want to be her friends. She was always alone. And when there were days when the men could come and visit, the boys could come and visit the girls that they liked, nobody ever came to visit her. So she was sad most of the time and she was angry at herself for not being prettier or more elegant or more graceful. So one year when that full moon night was approaching after the feast day of St. Anne, all the girls were getting ready to go and swim in the fairy lake. And they were making fun of her as usual, telling her that she shouldn't even try because the water is not going to help her. She spent the entire day in her house and she was crying and crying. And as the sun went down, something changed. She decided that she would go and she would swim and, and that she would try to see if the fairy magic would work on her because she really didn't know what else to do. So she snuck out of her house and still sobbing, still crying, she went down to the fairy lake and she was too shy to go and join the other girls and she didn't want them to make fun of her. So she walked around to the other side of the lake where there were a lot of reeds and bushes. And she was also too shy to undress. So she just took a deep breath. And as she was with clothes and all, she jumped into the lake. The problem was that Agnes couldn't swim. And her skirts filled up with water and they grew really heavy and they pulled her down into the water and the water was dark and cold and there were, there was, uh, there were weeds in it and she couldn't get back to the surface and her, her legs tangled into her, in, her, in her skirts and she thought that she was drowning. And just when she thought that this was the end of everything, Two hands grabbed her and pulled her back to the surface. And the next thing she knew, she was sitting on the, on the edge of the lake and she was cold and she was shivering and she was soaked to the bone. And next to her was one of the young men from the village. He was their neighbor and he heard her crying. And when he heard the door open and he heard her walking to the fairy lake, he thought that something was wrong. And he followed her and he arrived just in time to see her jumping into the lake. And when she didn't come back to the surface, he jumped after her and saved her. So there they were sitting by the lake and she was shivering and, and water was dripping from her hair. And he said, why, why would you want to kill yourself? And she said, I, I didn't, I didn't want to kill myself. I just, I just wanted to swim in the lake to see if the fairy magic would work and it to see if it would make me beautiful like the other girls. And the young man looked at her and maybe it was the fairy magic or maybe it was the moonlight or maybe it was something else altogether. But he said, but, but you are beautiful. 
and they smile at each other. And he walked her home. And after that, he would visit every week. And they fell in love. And eventually they got married. And they are still telling this story in the area. And I'm not sure they are telling it to make you go and swim in that lake on the first full moon night after St. Anne's Feast Day. Although people can certainly try as long as they can swim. But I think people tell this story to show that there are many kinds of magic in this world. And uh, some of them make really good stories. Lovely. Thank you very much. That was a great story. Thank you. Uh, is that one you tell a lot? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's just it's just very close to my heart because because I know where it takes place and I know the fairy lake and uh, I like fairy stories. And I also kind of like that this story says something very important about bullying and self-esteem. And it just has a lot of really good messages um the more i thought about it i also love the part of it that that uh, there is a young man who hears someone crying and he knows that something is wrong and he wants to make sure that she's okay so he's not you know he's not there to spy on the girls bathing in the water or whatever he he hears her he really hears her and he he hears that something is wrong and that is the kind of uh character in in stories that I especially like it shows you that uh, that you can pay attention to other people and uh, that could be a matter of life and death okay great uh, well it's been really lovely to have you here on the podcast and to talk to you uh, we've been in touch for a while but I, we haven't actually had a chance to speak uh, maybe <laughs> in the in the after time when the world changes we'll meet at a storytelling festival sometime uh, but uh, where where could people find you online? I have a blog where I post regularly about folktales and research and uh, performances and storytelling experiences. I have Facebook, uh, my Facebook page. I share information about upcoming events, about workshops, about, uh, you know, storytelling articles. And I have Twitter uh, where I talk about folktales a lot and research and I connect with folklorists and storytellers around the world. And um, I think my Twitter feed is super, super chill. And I, it's just, it's just not no trolls, no, you know, no politics or whatever. It's just a lot of people talking about stories and folklore. And I'm really enjoying that. So if you are on Twitter, uh, feel free to connect. And uh, if I really like people just reaching out when they want to talk about stories or when they have a research question, I have a, um, I have a series on my blog where I answer storytelling questions uh, when people are looking for a story that they can't find or they are looking for a type of story that they can't find. Uh, I have a blog series where I help people with their storytelling research. So I'm always happy to connect and talk about those things. Great. 
Okay. Well, thank you again for joining us. It's been really lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please support it by sharing it on social media or even sharing the link with a few friends who enjoy a good story. I'd also really appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, as reviews really help the podcast to grow. You can get access to every House of Legends episode by becoming a patron. By pledging $5 per month or more, you'll receive a patron-only episode each month, along with a worksheet full of questions and creative prompts to help you deepen your connection to the story. As well as being an oral storyteller, I'm also an author. I write retellings of myths and legends, as well as fantasy inspired by Celtic myths and legends. You can find my books by searching for Daniel Allison on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, although currently you can only get my full catalogue on Amazon. You can get my book The Shattering Sea as a free download on Kindle, Kobo and Apple Books. If you're interested in becoming a storyteller yourself, or you're already a storyteller and would like to develop your craft, you can join my online storytelling school, The Roundhouse. You can also join my Myth Singers coaching program, which includes Roundhouse membership plus two monthly group coaching sessions with me, or you can take one-to-one coaching. Visit roundhouseschool.com. Visit roundhouseschool.com to learn more and download a free pack of stories. You'll find links to all of the above in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.